Well, good morning. Welcome, and if you are new, we are really, really glad you have joined us today. My wife and I will be out at the kind of the info, info booth afterwards. Come by and say hi to us. Yeah, as a pastor, one of the things I'm supposed to do is like, like help people, right? That's what I'm supposed to do is help people. So when I, I find stuff like on the internet that can like help people, I just feel like I like, like need to share it with you. So I found something on the internet that I think will will help you and, and um, you know, be an encouragement. So yeah, here, here it is. Are you encouraged? No, no, you hardy Canadians. Do I need to go to the next slide to get that out of the way? Or, yeah, okay, I'll go to the next slide then. I had to do that. If you are in the educational field or you have been in a class of a good teacher, a good teacher will practice something called learning readiness. It's kind of self-explanatory. It kind of readies you to learn. So a good teacher will build into their lesson some tools and techniques and principles so that you are best primed to learn because teaching does not happen just because something is said. Teaching happens when students learn. Same thing is true with somebody like me who regularly, you know, one of my roles as a pastor is to speak on a regular basis to bring sermons and messages. So that's why when I begin a message, oftentimes I will give you the big idea. That's one of these learning readiness ideas. What it does, it kind of, it actually, as you, as you give uh, that big idea, it kind of warms up the neurons so that you're really ready to receive the, uh, the, the information and insight about that topic. Some passages are really easy to find the big idea. They just like boop, pop, pop right out. Sometimes passages are a little more difficult to find that big idea. Now we're in the book of Mark, we started last week. This particular passage, the first few verses of the book, I found it a little difficult to come up with a really cogent, really snappy, big idea. So here's the big idea. Mark 1 through 8 includes some really good stuff we're going to learn about. How's that for creativity? <laughs> some, some really cool stuff. All right, now I'm going to kind of tease that out a little bit. We're going to see in this passage today four persons that point to four spiritual insights. They all start with P, by the way. That lead to four questions to consider. In fact, when you think about questions, that's another one of those kind of learning readiness ideas. Somebody counted up the number of questions in the Bible and Gospels that Jesus asked. They counted over 300. So apparently questions are pretty important. That's why oftentimes I will ask some questions. Now to set us up, we're going to watch a little short clip from uh, the Bible Project guys. They put together some really great videos that summarize the book. And we're going to see some of these clips as we go through this series. So watch this short clip now. The Gospel according to Mark. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed the story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, 
the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in act one, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In act two, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in act three, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the messianic king. Okay, so that's a good setup to kind of get our focus going here. So let's go back to this big idea from last week. I want to review. That's one of the ways that uh, you can learn by reviewing. That's one of the encouragements I've given to you is, as you come and you're part of our series to review the previous week. So last week, what we saw was stepping back from Mark before stepping in will best prepare us to maximize the impact from the book's message. And I uh, basically gave you an introduction. We looked at four components last week. We did a quiz and I gave out some prizes and the grand prize was a can of sardines. The young lady over here sat in the third row. I gave it to her and she did not look really excited that she won that prize. Anyway, we also saw another clip, and this is a, a screenshot of another video by these guys. Then we looked at what I call the bird's eye view. This is a picture of New York City. You can imagine a drone's view looking down. That's kind of what we did. Then I gave you some suggested next steps. And those suggested next steps are around something called the three learning R's. I encourage you to do this, and I will continue to do that. Read the passage. Read the upcoming passage. In your notes when you come in, you should see a little place there where it says next week's passage. Read the passage every day two or three times. Then we have a tool called the Ripe Reading Guide. This is something you can download from our website. It's an ancient way to read scripture. It stands for read, immerse, pray, and execute. You can download one of those from our website. The second R is record. In other words, take notes. If you're not a note taker, my challenge is try it. Just try it this time. See how much more you retain by doing that. Third R is, when it comes up here, there it goes, is review. Review, review, review. That's the way you're going to learn. So we gave some specific steps on how to do that. Now we have something called e-news that comes out every week. Every week in your inbox, we send an e-news about what's happening in the church. In that e-news, we have a short preview video clip of the upcoming message, the upcoming scriptures to read, a question to think about. If you're not on e-news, e you can email us at the church. We'll put you on that. When you came in today, you also got this little card. This little card has a QR code. You can scan that with your phone. You can go straight to our website that has all kinds of cool things. Uh, there are other tools to download. There are actually sermon manuscripts. You will find after Sunday the whole manuscript of what I have given you. So a lot of really, really good things. Uh, also, some videos of the prior messages. You can actually get the electronic copy of today's notes. All kinds of cool stuff. Now, on the back side of this, this is what I covered last week. Seven basic kind of principles or ideas to keep in mind as you read through the book. It's going to help you retain and learn more about what God has to say through this book about Jesus. Finally, we have these little discipleship guides. If you're a note taker, every week we three-hole punch the notes. You can get one of these on the cheap at the Welcome Center, and you can bring this, and you can insert your notes every week. So, some really good tools, I think. Now, let's go back again where we're going today. 
We're going to look at four persons that point to four spiritual insights that lead to four questions to consider. Now, I'm going to give you a little assignment as we read this first section. I'm going to ask you to see if you can find those four persons. Okay? So as I read through, just kind of make a mental note. Ah, there's one. Ah, there's one. Ah, there's one. Ah, there's one. Okay? So this is what we're going to look at today. Mark 1, 1 through 8. So if you want to get your Bibles or your Bible app, and let's stand as I read this passage. Mark 1, 1 through 8. You can just listen. You can follow along. So here we go. Mark 1, 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, in the desert rather, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts, he ate grasshoppers, <laughs> and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you can have a seat. All right, so let's just, a little feedback from you guys. So let's see if we can find these four people, if you found them. What was one? Jesus, all right, yeah, that's good. That's the main one. Who else? John the Baptist, who else? Isaiah, who's the fourth one? Holy Spirit, yes. I know that's a little tricky there, but Holy Spirit is a person. We'll talk more about him in a minute. So those four persons were Jesus, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Holy Spirit, good, good job. Very good job there. Now, I'm gonna give you uh, the kind of concept of the word that relates to each of these. I said a moment ago, they start with P. Jesus, his preeminence. Isaiah, prophecy or prophecies. John the Baptist, his purpose for coming. And the Holy Spirit, power or power for living. So let's walk through this passage and look at these four persons. And then I'm gonna uh, pose these four questions. And this is really where the rubber meets the road. But I'm gonna ask you to consider those questions this next week. Okay, here we go. In the beginning, or the beginning, of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, this beginning is almost like if you were to go to Genesis, Genesis 1, you would see in the beginning. So there's kind of a little parallel there. And the beginning actually is the word that, that uh, uh, signifies promise, primacy and rank and in power and dominion in time. And he's implying in this first verse kind of like a title for the book. It's claim to divine origin and it's focus, which is Jesus. So it is the beginning of the spreading of the good news, the gospel about Jesus. The spreading uh, the news about the preeminent Jesus. 
Remember that word, Jesus, his preeminence. Now, we actually kind of get an idea, this whole thing of preeminence, when we look at how Mark uh, used uh, words or names for Jesus. He used names like teacher and rabbi, uh, son of man, son of God, Messiah, those kind of names. And when you look at Jesus' names, all of those point to Jesus' preeminence. So let's take these apart here. Let's look at Jesus. The name Jesus is actually the Greek form, the New Testament was written in Greek, of the Hebrew form uh, name uh, uh, Joshua. We named our son Joshua, which means God is salvation. This was the name that the angel revealed to Jesus' human father, Joseph, to name Jesus. And in naming him that, he described his mission. Here's what Matthew 1 says. You are to give him the name Jesus... Because, he describes his mission next, because he will save his people from their sin. So there's, that's Jesus. Now, what about Christ? And this is not Jesus' last name like Charles Stone, but it's a very important name. It's the Greek word for the word anointed. If you go back in the Old Testament, there were three groups of people that were anointed for service. Prophets and priests and kings. So kings would be commissioned when they started their kingship by anointing. So God would anoint these three groups of people or in, people in those groups for special tasks. Jesus, however, is the ultimate anointed one, King, capital K, which really has behind it the Hebrew word Messiah, which means Messiah, which means the people were longing for the Messiah. The long-awaited, perfect, anointed king chosen by God to save us from our sins. Now, another one was the Son of Man. When you read through the, the, the Gospels, you'll see Son of Man. It was actually Jesus' self-described name. He used that name for himself, his self-proclaimed title. And this title actually did not exist until Jesus used it for himself. Now, notice something here. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Now, actually, Son of God and Son of Man are similar. If you were to nuance the two, Son of Man would relate more to Jesus' humanity, perfect. Uh, Son of God more to his divinity. But whenever you see like the Son of God or the Son of Man, it means that Jesus is the unique man. He is what one scholar said it this way. He's the unique representation of the human race. He's not merely a human being. He is the human being, the true man. So, son of God, son of man, kind of, kind of interchangeable. Another key word here, the word gospel. We saw this last week. The gospel means good news. Now, uh, when you study the Bible, what you do is, is you look at, okay, how were words used in that culture? Whether of the Old Testament time or New Testament time. This word was used in a secular sense. It's the word euangelion. And it means good news. And oftentimes, this word was used when two, two warring nations were fighting each other. And these guys won. And they, because they won, that was called good news. And so you had a messenger that would be at the battlefield. The, 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 his, his nation won. And he would run back and tell the king and the na you know, people back, back in town, hey, we won. That is good news. However, when it was used in the ancient world, it was plural, like, and I'm going to kind of mess with the English language here, good newses, okay? Those were good newses, plural. This one here, I'm going to use a different color, is the gospel, the good news, means 
singular. It's a singular good news, which this good news is over all these other, other kinds of things that might qualify for good newses. Okay? So Mark is proclaiming the good news singular already experienced by the Roman Christians. Now, last week I said Mark was written primarily to the Roman Christians in Rome. They were undergoing intense persecution. They were beginning to slip away from the, some of the historical roots of Christianity. So, Mark includes a lot of these historical experiences in the life of Jesus to encourage them. So, Mark, first gospel written, he starts a new kind of literature that we call the Gospels. Uh, and it's applying the general word gospel in a preeminent way, the good news of the life in ministry of Jesus who has come, who has uh, begun a new age, who is preeminent over all of the good news is, and our response should be faith and repentance in him. So the gospels, all the gospels, they're more than just a set of truths or beliefs. They are that. They are historical events. But the gospel itself really is about a person. That's why it says the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so that's Jesus and his preeminence. Let's go to the next one, Isaiah. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger Remember the messenger that would come from the battlefield? You know, he's a messenger. Well, John the Baptist, same thing too. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord make straight paths for him. Now, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, several hundred years had passed. And the people were hungering for a word from God. No more prophets. They hadn't heard from God. And then Jesus broke into history. And the prophets, they made all these prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, this particular prophecy here is written in Isaiah the prophet. It's really kind of a combination of three different prophecies from the Old Testament. The primary one comes from the book of Isaiah. And what the prophets would do, they would foretell the future. And by doing so, it shows us how Jesus is linked to the Old Testament. God began his work on the people of Israel, outlined in the Old Testament. He completed his work on the person of Jesus Christ that we see in the New Testament. Now, last week I mentioned that the primary audience of uh, Mark were not Americans, were not Canadians. They were non-Jews. They were Gentiles. So, these Gentiles that were hearing this message were not as familiar as a Jew would have been. A Jew would have read the Old Testament scriptures. They would have understand some of these things. So, what, what he does, what Mark does, he uses a little phrase to communicate to these non-Jewish people who don't have understanding about Jewish history to emphasize this is authoritative. And here's the phrase used in that culture, in, that, in writing. It is written. So, what he's saying is, what I'm about to say here, this has authority. Now, notice something else here. He uses way, not once, not twice, but three times. Similar thing. Pass here. He is basically saying that the ultimate way to God is the path of Jesus. Another name for Jesus. See if you can pick that one up here. It's Lord. It was a term used by the early church to describe Jesus. Now, one of, let, me, let me step back here a little bit. One of the primary um, objective reasons to believe the gospel, to believe in Christianity, is the fact of prophecies. Let me put it in perspective here a little bit. 
Remember, prophecies were told by the prophecies foretold the future. In the Old Testament, there are some 60 prophecies and 270 ramifications that were fulfilled in Jesus that we find in the, in the Gospels. Now, for those of you who are math experts, you'll like this. There's something called probability. Probability is the chance that something would happen. If you just take these 60 prophecies, no, let's not take 60, let's take eight. The probability that someone at a future time, hundreds of years later, would fulfill just eight prophecies, okay? You understand what I'm saying? Just fulfill eight prophecies. The probability is this number, and I'm going to kind of count backwards so we can kind of know what that number is. It's this. It's hundreds, thousands, millions, billions, trillions, quadrillion. One in 100 quadrillion chance that one person could fulfill eight prophecies. That is pretty big. Now, let me put that in perspective. Yeah, I'm an American and I uh, used to, I went to seminary, Cheryl and I met in Texas. Texas is a really big state. Uh, either Texas or uh, Alaska are the biggest states. But anyway, here's what one in 100 billion. Oh, by the way, uh, the chance of getting struck by lightning, one in 250 million. Okay. So, just imagine the big state of Texas and the Canadian government just really wants to help out the U.S. And they give us, uh, give the states uh, uh, enough tunies to cover the state of Texas two feet thick. Okay, got that picture? That's a lot of toonies, right? Two feet thick, state of Texas. One of those is marked with a red X, okay? Red X. Then it's, they're all stirred up, okay? All stirred up. And then, you, like Nadina, okay, so Nadina is picked, this is Nadina right here, she is picked to go pick one of those coins. The chance that she would pick one of those coins in all of Texas, one mark coin, two feet thick, is one in 100 quadrillion. So you see folks, believing in Christianity has sound, has sound historical basis. It has objective truth to believe in Christianity, verifiable historical truth. It is the faith of thinking people. Now certainly it takes faith, certainly. I'm not discounting that at all. But it's not just a blind leap in the dark. There are sound historical uh, bases that you can base your belief in Christianity on. Okay, let's go back to the scripture here. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, who in the world is John the Baptist? Well, let me give you a little history of John the Baptist. His mom was named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a relative of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, Elizabeth was married to Zechariah. They were really old. They didn't have kids. God made it possible for them to have a kid in Elizabeth's old, old age. Well, that, this happened six months before, miraculously by the Holy Spirit, Mary began to hold the baby Jesus in her womb. Jesus began to, to grow and he was going to be born here, you know, nine months. Well, six months difference here. So, when Mary heard this amazing fact that she was now pregnant with the Son of God, she went to visit her relative Elizabeth. 
And the Gospels tell us that when she came into Elizabeth's house, John, who was six months ahead and you know, being formed in her womb, leaped for joy because he knew that Jesus was, he was in the very presence of Jesus. Well, when John was born, he was named John. That was very unusual. In those days, you would name your baby boy a name that was uh, a name in your family tree. Now, I, we named our son Joshua Charles Stone. So he's got Charles there. My dad's Charles. I'm a Charles Jr. But Charles started with my dad. So, uh, you know, it's kind of common today, but we're not required. But it was really unusual because an angel told Zechariah to name him John. So they knew, oh my, this boy is going to be very, very special. Became an adult. He went into the desert to preach. Now, when we think of the desert, what do we usually think of? This kind of desert, right? This wasn't the kind of desert he went into. Around Palestine, it's more like this. You know, scrubby bushes. You know, there's water some places. You can eke out a living. But he went there and he preached there at the Jordan River. And he had assumed the dress of another prophet, Elijah, that wore this kind of crazy dress. Now, he was not going to get a, an award for how he dressed. It says that he wore these kind of really rough clothes and he ate grasshoppers. I guess it tastes like chicken. I don't know. But he ate grasshoppers, ate honey, and he preached, preached repentance. Now, scholars say he may have taken a vow, a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow would be when a man took a vow, he would not eat alcohol, he would not uh, enjoy the niceties of life because he had a higher call by God. That was what a Nazarite vow would be. So great, great self-discipline, eating grasshoppers, all those kind of things. So for sure, John was not making a fashion statement here. He wore this camel's hair robe, which was pretty scratchy. Really poor people, that's what you would wear. And instead of fancy belts, the really rich people like really fancy belts. It was just, a, you know, a, a, a piece of rope or leather. That was all it was. Very, very, very simple. His dress was quite a contrast to the refined dress of the religious elite. And really what he was doing, this was a protest against the godliness, godlessness and self-serving materialism of his day. It was really a call to those people who came out to hear him preach to turn from sin. Now, where he preached in the wilderness, remember, it was in the wilderness where he preached, it was actually kind of a reminder to the Jewish people who came out to hear him preach of what had happened when they escaped Egypt. It was like a reenactment, leaving Egypt, going into the desert. So people would leave their towns and they would go in the desert to hear John preach. He was ultimately put in jail and was killed. All right. Here it says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people. Now, it doesn't mean like every person there. It's kind of like, you know, we'll say like everybody was there. That's kind of what he's saying here. All the people of Jerusalem went out to, to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, one scholar said there were so many people that made this trek out in the wilderness that maybe up to 300,000 were baptized. So a lot of people were prepared for the coming of Jesus. Now, here is where he did it. Here's a map of Israel. Okay, this is Israel right here. Here is Jerusalem. Here is the Sea of Galilee. South of the Sea of Galilee is the traditional place of his baptism ministry. Now, why was he so effective? I think one of the ways is people wanted to come out. They wanted to see somebody who was on fire for God. He embodied his message. 
he embodied what he was saying. People would come out and they would see this man just lit up for God. That was one of the reasons why so many people came out to hear him preach. And here's what he preached. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does the word repent mean? Anybody have an idea? Just turn. It's turn from. Okay. Turn. It's, it's kind of an about, about face. It fundamentally means a change of mind, altering your understanding about something, which implies a rational decision. Not primarily emotional, although when we come to faith, there is that emotional content, certainly. But the New Testament uses this fundamental word repentance in a very deep way. It means this. Here's what it means. Here's what repentance means. It means turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Repentance is turning from sin and turning to Jesus. That's basically fundamentally what it means. And God's direct response, when we turn from our sin and we place our faith in Jesus, his response is he forgives us. He gives us new life. Now, this baptism was quite radical. Now, I want you to imagine you lived in that day and time and you're a Jewish person, okay? And, uh, and let's say your friend was a Gentile, non-Jewish Jewish person, and his friend wanted to become a Jew. Well, they had to go through this ritual process. And one of the things that the Gentile had to do to become a Jew was to get baptized. So that was kind of like, yeah, yeah. But for a Jew to get baptized, this was really radical. John's baptism focused on repentance from sin. Just as generations before had been separated from Egypt, when they went through the waters of the Red Sea, John was preaching kind of a spiritual exodus as they were baptized, symbolically picturing their separation from sin. So they go out, they make this day trip, they go out to where John the Baptist is preaching, and he preaches against sin and their duplicity, they fall into conviction, and they go get in line to get baptized. That's what was happening out there. The New Living Translation puts it this way. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show as evidence of that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Now that was the first part of John's message. Repent. He preached repentance and people came out and turned from their sin. But there was a second part. And the second part is is more of an ultimate spiritual baptism. It says in verse 7, and this was his message. After me will come one. Who is that one that he's talking about? Jesus, yeah. One more, more powerful than I. The thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he, that is Jesus, will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. And that's that fourth person, the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, so great is this one coming. Like in those days, um, when you walked on the, on the dusty roads, you know, you get dirt and dust on your toes and your feet. And you go into a wealthy person's house and the servant would un- unbuckle your thongs and got to wash your feet. That's what servants did. And John said, I'm below that. I, I, I'm not even worthy enough to untie Jesus, the, the belt, the buckles or, the, or, or, or his shoes. I'm not even worthy to do that. That points to his humility and also points to, okay, I understand now there's a changing of the guard. It's not John the Baptist. I, John the Baptist, was preparing the way, but now it's Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. So this new baptism refers to New Testament baptism. How many of you were in our uh, outdoor, ba- saw our outdoor baptism three or four weeks ago? 
Okay, Sarah, I love you. Listen, you, you missed something. It was amazing. We baptized 19 people. It was really, really cool. Baptism, we actually have, if you're new, underneath that floor over there, there's a baptismal pool. We baptize people uh, in, uh, inside, you know, when it's, when it's uh, bad weather, but outside when it's good weather. Baptism is really important. It is not salvific. By that I mean it does not save you, it does not forgive you, but rather it pictures that you have been forgiven. And by the way, if you have not been baptized, really need to be. It's a really important thing. We see, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, Jesus being baptized. One of the reasons as an example for us to be baptized. So John the Baptist is saying this. He's saying, I am drenching you with water, but that's external. But there is one who is going to come to drench you with the Holy Spirit, which is internal. Now, as you follow kind of the kind of the biblical history, we have the Gospels, then we have the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us the formation of the early church and when the Holy Spirit came that we call Pentecost. At that point, we begin learning more about who the Holy Spirit is. Now, the distinction is not this. It's not like before Pentecost, Old Testament, no Holy Spirit. After Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit came, then the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit has always been. He is co-equal in essence and eternity with God the Father uh, and God the Son. But we begin to learn more about the Holy Spirit as we get into Acts and some of the letters, the later books of the Bible. Now, in the Old Testament, God would bestow the Holy Spirit on some people for special purposes. They had a special project or special, something special God wanted them to do. He would bestow the Holy Spirit on them. Now, I, we could do, I don't know, weeks and weeks on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a quick 30-second summary, okay, of some things about the Holy Spirit. It's very, very brief. Here we go. The Holy Spirit is not a God-sized version of Casper the Friendly Ghost. He's not the biggest angel. He's not the good side of so-called Star Wars, the Force. He's not a New Age spirit guide. But God himself the Holy Spirit is a person. He's what we call the third person of the Trinity. The Trinity is the word the early church fathers described, used to describe one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all equal in every single way. So the Holy Spirit really makes Jesus real to us. He empowers us for daily living. And at the very point, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have repented to turn to Jesus, at that very point, guess what happened? You got the Holy Spirit. Right then and there. Here's what Paul wrote. He says, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free, but we, that is all who place their faith in Jesus, have all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit. And we all have all, all received the same spirit. Water baptism is something that we do after the fact. Spirit baptism is a one-time act that occurs at the very moment you place your faith in Jesus. We all have the equal measure of the Holy Spirit. We do. However, some people, because they're more yielded to the Lord, their walk is more consistent, they experience more of his power and more of his grace and more of his peace. But the Holy Spirit, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, 
uh, equals having the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. It is a universal experience of every follower of Jesus Christ. There aren't the haves and the have-nots. You don't get the Holy Spirit in installment payments. You get them all at once. However, the more we yield to the Holy Spirit, the more we experience the joy and the peace and the power that he gives. All right, let's recap before I give you these four questions. Gave you four persons in this section of Mark, Jesus, Isaiah, John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit. See if you can recall without looking at your notes the word associated with each of these. Jesus, preeminence. Isaiah, prophecy. John the Baptist, purpose. That's a little harder why he came. He was paving the way for Jesus. Holy Spirit, power, the power for, for living. Now, in light of these, I'm going to give you four questions. And I really, really want you to ask yourself, which of these questions uh, do I resonate with the most? Okay, that's kind of going to be like your, your spiritual sign for next week. All right. Jesus, who is preeminent, the question is, how preeminent really is he in your life? Is Jesus simply an historical figure, a really good teacher, somebody that you, you know, you need something, you, you, you pray to him? Or is he central to your life? Is he really your all? Is he that person you are so committed to that he takes precedent over every other choice that it's seen in all of your life? How preeminent is he? Second person, Isaiah. Is anything hindering your walk in the path of Jesus? Remember uh, Isaiah, that, that prophecy, three times used the word way or path. Is there something that kind of makes you stumble as you're following the path of Jesus? And is there something consistently that pulls you off of that path? What might he be? Third one, John the Baptist. How well does your life embody your profession? You'll notice all these dovetail. How well does your life embody your profession? Remember, people came out to see John the Baptist, and he lived, he was living, he was walking what he was preaching. He was living out consistently what he said. So how well does your life embody your profession? And here's the third, or the fourth person, the Holy Spirit. How consistently do you yield your heart to the Holy Spirit's gentle promptings? Now here's the way the Holy Spirit works. He usually does not work through like the thunder and lightning idea. But usually the Holy Spirit, the way he works is through gentle promptings in your heart. Nudging you this way, nudging you that way, nudging you to say something, nudging you to do an act of good deed, nudging you to understand this bit of scripture. And unless we're paying attention, unless we're slowing down enough in life, we won't, we won't get it. He's not going to say, hey, Hey, Charles, it's the Holy Spirit. It doesn't do like that. It's more like this. Charles, Charles, are you listening? That's the way he usually works. All right, let's put them all up here at once. Jesus is preeminent. How preeminent is he in your life? Isaiah, is anything hindering your walk in the path of Jesus? John the Baptist, how well does your life embody your profession, do you walk your talk? And then the Holy Spirit, how consistently did you yield your heart to the Holy Spirit's gentle promptings? 
So which one of these questions, just take, take a look at those one more time and ask yourself, which one of these really resonated with me? I'm going to pause about 30 seconds and you read those again and just kind of check mark in your mind the one that resonates the most with, with you. Did you pick one? Hope you did. Here's my challenge to you. Write that one down somewhere. Send, send yourself an email with that question. Write, write a and I'll post it note, stick it on your car dashboard, your refrigerator, or you know, whatever would remind you. And let that be something you mull over, you pray about, you think about. You yield your heart to the Lord. Say, Lord, change me. Change me in, in that specific area. Okay? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the Gospels. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that in the Old Testament we have these prophets who prophesied about the work and life of Jesus. We thank you that in Jesus these prophecies have been fulfilled. We thank you, Lord, that Christianity is a faith for thinking people. It is based on historical truth. And Lord, as we have uh, teased out uh, the implications of these four people mentioned in this passage. My challenge to all of us was to honestly ask ourselves which one of those questions uh, most resonated. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring that question to mind to every person who uh, made a choice about one of those questions. May your Holy Spirit bring us to a, a, deep, a deeper walk with you because... We're pausing to think about these kinds of things. And before I close this uh, prayer, uh, you may be out there and you never trusted Christ. You never repented that it's turned from your sins and turned to Christ. Jesus did all the work. You don't have to clean your life up first. Simply come to Jesus. And you can come to him for forgiveness and new life by simply telling him something like this in your heart. So if you never trusted Jesus, repented, you can say something like this in your heart. Dear God, I repent of my sins. I turn from my sins. I turn to Jesus who died on the cross for my sins. Who took upon himself all of my sins. Forgive me. By faith, I want to become a follower of Jesus. So Lord, I pray for that man, woman, student, grandma, grandpa, that just did that, that you would uh, just fill them with your presence and help them understand the amazing reality of being a follower of Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.